0: This panel was part of the SGPS Scholarship Beyond Boundaries Conference, hosted at Queen's University, from the 29th of February to the 1st of March, 2020.
1: Okay, awesome. Well, welcome to Tongue in Trees. So today, um, we're going to be hearing from Jason, who is a PhD student in Environmental Studies at Queen's. And we're also gonna be hearing from Carmel, who is a master's student in English. And today they will be discussing Gaia, the co-extensiveness and how to engage with the more than human world when talking about concepts like democracy. So before we get started, uh, I'm just gonna call up Laura and Matt to uh, say a few words and
0: then we'll get started. Oh, well just, we wanted to thank you for taking up so imaginatively. The title we offered, The Tongues and Trees, we were mm. just so delighted to see what you came up with.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: so on behalf of, for me, the Sonic Arts of Place Lab, okay. and Bath, The, uh, the Sonic
2: Arts Studio in the Dance School of Drama and Music. Yeah, we okay.
0: just wanted to thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you, for you for the suggestive, uh, <laughs> provocative
3: <laughs> name. It was really, it actually, that is what started the conversation for us, was that idea of how do we hear the more than human world? How does the more than human <laughs> world speak? How do we include it in democratic process what does this concept of co have to do with it all so yeah so yeah unfortunately we do not have our third presenter today joanna did get called well she has a family emergency and is actually on a flight to the uk right now so hope she's doing well um she was going to cover our democratic piece and the democratic process um and rather than fumble our way through it, we're going to more or less leave it out and have that part of the discussion at the end. Um, and it does enter into Carmel's piece, hey? Yeah. yeah. Dem- democracy. So, but what I'm going to look at is this idea of Gaia, more specifically Gaia the intruder, um, and what that term means. So but first of all, I'm just curious, how many people here have heard of Gaia or have some familiarity with that idea? So. Everyone has a little bit of an idea of it. So I don't need to spend too much on this first part, but I will go through it so we're all on the same page because there are so many different articulations of Gaia, There's so many different ways, even within James Lovelock's initial articulation of it. It's been He has described it in so many different ways using so many different metaphors and literalizations and objectifications that it's hard to parse out what this idea means anymore. Um, so I'm going to give a brief definition of Gaia. We're going to look at uh, progress as a cultural ideology. And then we're gonna look at this idea from Isabel Stenger's Gaia the Intruder, uh, and what the con- how the concept of Gaia makes us think differently about progress and about our position in, in the world and in our culture. And then we're gonna sort of leave on a suggestive note about what it might mean to think beyond the human, and how we might begin to enact those types of conversations. And uh, since we do have a bit of time opened up, I'm going to take us through a bit of an imaginative exercise at that point. It'll be about a five minute uh, thing from from this book here, but I'll get to that in a bit. So first off, Gaia generally is a way of conceiving the Earth as a series of interconnected feedback loops. It was originally articulated by James Lovelock and co-developed with Lynn Margulis in the 1970s. Um, it originally came about because Lovelock was actually tasked with determining whether there was life on Mars, and rather than sending expensive probes out there or looking through high-powered telescopes at, to find life, he thought, no, we don't have to do that, we just need to look at the atmosphere, because the way you notice about Mars' atmosphere is that it's chemically inert right? As opposed to our atmosphere, which exists far from chemical equilibrium. So if he recognized that that far from equilibrium state of the atmosphere is due to the presence of life on Earth. If life were to disappear, then the chemical composition of the atmosphere would become, uh, would reach an equilibrium state. So it's only uh, life that's keeping these processes at a far from equilibrium state. So from this he derived this idea that the living and non-living parts of the earth interact to form a self-regulating whole. Uh, That idea has since been extended into the carbon cycle, the water cycle, different geological cycles um, that sort of really break down the boundary between abiotic and biotic and living and non-living because through these cyclic processes that sort of maintain themselves in these homeostatic feedback loops. Uh, all these these binaries really start to become erased. Uh, so he he was an engineer and he articulated it from a very scientific engineering type of perspective but the idea of Gaia has since been taken up in historical analyses, evolutionary analyses, sociopolitical, philosophical um, and even mythopoetic because it is named Gaia which is uh, Greek, a primordial Greek goddess coming only after chaos, um, sort of the Mother Earth goddess. But it actually wasn't Lovelock's idea to to name it Gaia. It, that idea came from his friend William Golding, who some of you might know the author of Lord of the Flies. They, were, they lived in the same village and they were having conversations and Lovelock wanted to name it some really boring scientific acronym. And um, it was Golding that suggested this idea of Gaia and it was a really fateful decision because that's really what has put it into a lot of the popular consciousness and also made it sort of contentious in some ways because it wasn't originally articulated as this sort of um, that the earth is somehow sentient or somehow has a soul or something like that although some people have taken the idea in that direction Um, that's not how it was originally intended but uh, anyway it has been opened up into those into those realms and I think for me at least Part of its power as an idea is in that ambiguity and is in that flexibility. What we're concerned with mostly for this conversation is not how true Gaia is or the details of of its articulation, but what the the idea of Gaia does for our ways of understanding the world and how it disrupts or intrudes on many of our taken-for-granted ways of being in the world. So now I kind of want to look at this idea of progress, which is in many ways is sort of the tacitly assumed ideology of how we live our lives. Um, there's lots of ways to think about progress. We're not going to get into all of them right now. Uh, <coughs> I'm just going to touch on sort of this idea and how, how it's been developed over, this, over the centuries, really, because it is an idea that is so embedded in our culture that, again, it, it's difficult to see. Um, So again, there's many ways to understand it. We can look at it from a religious lens in terms of its beginnings in Christianity and the idea in Christianity that time takes on this teleological structure. that we are heading towards some sort of omega point where we'll be redeemed. Um, We can look at its articulation in the 17th century with Descartes with his split between the subject and the object. Here, sort of represented by the split between culture and nature. Uh, and that was subsequently developed into um, from natural philosophy into a scientific methodology that further sort of objectifies nature, uh, with often the goal of science being sort of liberating humans from nature. Uh, and we see that in t- a lot of today's rhetoric around geoengineering solutions to climate change, that somehow we're going to solve all our problems through this through this techno-scientific methodology. Um, you see it in a lot of the metaphors we use. when talking about nature, natural resources, that we're going to manage nature as a storehouse of resources, Uh, and this idea is further extended through the colonial enterprise, where land is claimed and conquered and wilderness is tamed, so in all these cases we're enacting this split between culture and nature, that somehow humans are transcendent from this thing that we call nature. yeah, and what's important here is that in a lot of these articulations, nature is conceived of as sort of a static backdrop for the heroic impulse of human activity. It's kind of the environment, right? It's, this, it's, this, it's the backdrop of, against which we act. And nature's objectified as something that a human subject transcends. But this is where articulations of Gaia start to mess things up a little bit. By naming Gaia, we've created a way of seeing in which humans are no longer the sole possessors of agency, acting against the backdrop of a static environment, because we, the articulation of Gaia embeds us in all these agential cycles of natural, living, non-living um, parts. We're just a part of that, that, those cyclings of those processes. Um, the philosopher Bruno Latour puts it really nicely when he says, That the material framework that we have taken for granted as the backdrop against which history plays out has become unstable it is as if the decor had gotten up on stage to share the drama with the actors and that from this moment on everything changes in the way stories are told so this story of human transcendence over a static nature just doesn't really fit anymore and all these so isabel stangers calls it gaia the intruder because this articulation of Gaia intrudes on our affairs, intrudes on business as usual. Um, it disrupts our normal ways of being. It disrupts our normal ways of thinking about things, um, and how we respond to that is is everything. So, because of this intrusion, we're sort of invited. I think I like to think of it as an invitation. We we often f- think of the environmental crisis as a set of problems that need to be solved. Right. That's typically the rhetoric that you hear about the environmental crisis and I'm certainly not going to deny that that is a direction we should be taking on it there's lots of problems in there that do require solutions but a lot of the problems are also wicked problems which are this idea that you solve one thing and something else pops out somewhere else so another way to think of crisis um, is sort of as an invitation towards new ways of seeing and new ways of being Uh, and that's what I kind of try to do as a thinker as a philosopher um, is to move beyond anthropocentric conceptualizations of agency or thinking or doing or being uh, to engage with what donna Haraway calls simple oasis or making with making together that kind of idea um, so rather than the uh, logocentric logical analysis and linear thinking of the of progress like that previous chart uh we're invited or Stangers would say compelled to think in new ways So that's where this idea of thinking beyond the human comes from. And this is kind of the question that I am... This is sort of a suggestive list, and I want us to sort of think about what it might mean to move beyond the logics of linear thinking, move beyond uh, conceptualization, over-conceptualization and reification towards different ways of being in different modalities that might participate with the more-than-human world. Um, in creative and imaginative ways. So again this list isn't exhaustive but is more meant to be suggestive. And yeah, so a lot of my work is in these these worlds so I have I have a lot to say about each one in different ways but rather than have me babble on what I'd like to do is go through an imaginative exercise from this book by Stephen Harding, Stephen Harding, I guess. He's a British guy. He teaches at Schumacher College. He wrote this really beautiful book, Animate Earth, where he goes through the science of Gaia, um, you know, the carbon cycle, the water cycle, life and the elements, but then in between each chapter he has these imaginative exercises. So I'm going to take us through one. there will be about five minutes I think it's gonna be fun it'll give us an idea about what what but one way that we might start thinking beyond the human so if you're comfortable you can close your eyes and get well seated in your seats and get comfy put your feet on the ground and and we'll go through this I say it'll be about five minutes so this is we're going to become a carbon atom for the next five minutes (laughs) (laughs) You're a carbon atom locked up in limestone rock at the bottom of the sea. For the last 300 million years, you've experienced nothing but the cold pressure and seeming immobility of solid rock around you. Nothing but the ancient, peaceful silence of the rock. No movement, no sound, no change. Just the immense repose that has engulfed you for time beyond memory. Settle into the feeling of immense tranquility that surrounds you. You experience a slow sinking feeling as the sea floor that carries you from below slowly approaches the edge of a continent, dragging you downwards into the depths of the earth. Feel the temperature and pressure increasing as you sink down into the dark depths. It's so hot now that the limestone you're a part of begins to melt, merging with the silica that surrounds it. Feel the intense heat and pressure. The chemical bonds holding you to your calcium atom vibrate with an agonizing intensity. You are shaken about like a pea in a box. The shaking is so extreme now that you realize that you are being liberated from the limestone. You feel awake and excited. You tingle with anticipation. Feeling incomplete, you quickly bond with two passing oxygen atoms, newly released from the glassy shell of a melting diatom. Savor the passionate embraces of your two oxygen lovers. The three of you are now part of a new emergent being, a molecule of carbon dioxide. Now the red-hot molten rock around you flows quickly upwards. You travel faster and faster through a great wide gash in Gaia's crust, almost deafened by the mad sound of surging gas and rock. The sound intensifies, and with it the slow, red-hot turbulence that carries you higher and higher, closer and closer to a new life that you, that you know will soon open up for you. Pressure is building behind you. You're moving very fast. The pressure, the sound, and the heat are immense and powerful. You are right in the very heart of a massive volcanic eruption. A bursting release of energy propels you high into the air along with the vast amounts of smoke, ash and red hot lava. You look down at the smoking volcano far below. Already you are high up in the atmosphere, buffeted by the intense updraft that has brought you this far so quickly. All day long the sun has been beating down. You drift in the air, warming it warming it as heat from Gaia's surface bounces off the bonds that hold you to your two oxygen lovers. Great air currents carry you northwards, and for weeks you soar high above the seas and forests. You enjoy the delicious freedom of travel, wondering at the amazing views of mountains, forests, and oceans bonded still to your oxygen lovers. How the planet has changed since you were last here some 300 million years ago, when the first four-limbed creatures crawled upon it. At last, a great gust of air carries you down over a modern-day granite outcrop. You swirl closer and closer to the ground and sweep past a succulent bush, alive with luscious yellow flowers. You brush against a pore on the underside of a leaf and are caught in a tiny in-breath that sucks you into the translucent green interior of the leaf. By depriving the air of a carbon dioxide molecule, your leaving cools the earth. Giant molecular beings surround you and take you to a great green chamber deep in the cell the chloroplast. A blinding flash of sunlight shakes you to your core. You are joined to other carbon and hydrogen atoms. The newly forged chemical bonds that bind you to your fellow atoms hold the sun's energy. You are now part of a sugar molecule, beginning a new journey through a peaceful green sap. You feel a tugging downwards towards the plant's roots. Slowly you move through wide tubes, ever downwards, pulled by a ceaseless but subtle flow that takes many other molecular beings along with You reach the very tip of a growing root hair and pass into a growing cell. All around you there is frenetic activity as new root cells are made, pushing the root ever further in its incessant search for nutrients. Your root finds a crack in the solid granite beneath the soil. It breaks into the crack, splitting the rock as it swells. Once again, oxygen lovers embrace you, tearing you apart, releasing the solar energy you've held for so long. Now, once again, you belong to a carbon dioxide molecule, breezed out by the root into the surrounding soil. There has been much rain, and the soil is waterlogged. You feel an irresistible attraction for a passing water molecule, and together you become carbonic acid, which instantly releases a single tiny hydrogen ion, the smallest being in the chemical world. The carbonic acid molecules around you release a vast horde of hydrogen ions into the soil. The hydrogen ions dissolve the granite, releasing calcium and silicon atoms, long incarcerated in the rock. You feel irresistibly attracted to one of these calcium atoms as it drifts near you. You bond with it to become liquid chalk. You're pulled downwards by the flow of groundwater. Now your great river journey begins. You hear a rushing, gushing sound, and suddenly you enter the flow of the river as it tumbles over great boulders and waterfalls on its way to the sea. In the cool surface waters of the sea, you are sucked into the embrace of a marine algae protected by tiny wheels of solid chalk. You soon become part of one of these wheels. The algae lives its short life and dies. You slowly sink towards the ocean deeps, cherishing the memories of your brief journey in the air above. Sinking, sinking into the depths, you leave behind the upper sunlit reaches of the sea and eventually settle onto the chalky sediments in the darkness at the bottom of the ocean. Slowly, you feel the weight of new chalky deposits accumulating above you, and slowly, ever so slowly, the pressure packs you closer and closer together into limestone. The great journey is complete. And now you must wait for another 300 million years before you once again explode into the atmosphere through a volcano. Open your eyes. Now we're humans again. Are we? <laughs> Are we? Yeah, we. Gone through a journey. Maybe we've thought beyond the humans. So, I'm going to leave it on that. Can I give you a hand. Sure. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And Carmel.
4: Thank you so much, Jason. Um, Jason and Joanna have, and I have been meeting and talking about this for months, actually. Um, And it's been so great just trying to have sort of iterative discussions to try and focus in how we wanted to kind of collaborate on this idea and how what we were working on related to each other. And so it's been a truly interdisciplinary exercise, for sure, in every kind of way. Um, We all come from different disciplines. I'm um, in the English department. Um, Joanna is in political studies. And uh, Jason's in environmental studies. So it was really interesting to see how there were already Even before we started this project, there were actually tons of parallels in the work that we were doing. And this project really just helped us articulate some of those. Um, So thank you for the opportunity to think about these questions. Um, So I did some work on a a writer, an author called Marilyn Robinson. And um, I want to talk a little bit about her first book, Housekeeping, because it has some fascinatingly parallel theories. I'm going to start just with a with a quote from her. Robinson says, I have a theory about this moment in American history. We've all forgotten what ought to be the hypothetical character of our thinking. She wrote this in a 2014 essay. Robinson is a Pulitzer Prize winning American writer. Um, Her first novel, which I'm going to be talking about, was written in 1989, and then she took a long hiatus, and then since has been writing several novels, most of them all award-winning. But she came into a sort of mainstream attention in about 2015, when uh, President Barack Obama proclaimed her one of his favorite American novelists, and then um, hosted a recorded conversation with her that was released by the New York Review of Books. And so she kind of became a household name in a different way than she ever had. They talked about things like the, cur- the kind of American character and, and, o- and President Obama in that conversation, he asked her about what he called a long time strain in democracy and American politics. This was in 2015, even then he was talking about this strain. Um, and I just found this conversation fascinating Because coming from, if you knew nothing about Marilyn Robinson and her work, you might ask, why would the then leader of the free world (laughs) seek out a 70-year-old woman from Iowa, a novelist, to talk about how to diagnose and repair a decline in American democracy? It seems sort of puzzling. Um, But if you delve into her work, you find that in all of her writing, both her, her nonfiction political essays and her novels, Um, Robinson is very concerned with how we think about, interpret, and represent reality. She writes that all notions of reality should be regarded as intrinsically hypothetical. So that's kind of the hypothetical that she's talking about in this quote. We should regard all notions of reality, what we think is real, the way we think about our world and where we belong in it, um, as, as sort of undefinable hypothetical, having many possibilities. And she writes that the way we define reality, it's not just a thought experiment, it actually has very real consequences, not only for American democracy, but for global democratic life. And I'm gonna elaborate this on this a bit more. But in this talk, I'm gonna do a sort of rereading of Robinson's first novel, Housekeeping. A lot has been written about this text already, mostly about how women's lives are represented and how the domestic space is represented. The title is Housekeeping. Um, But my reading focuses on the political potential of some of the more subtle themes in this book. Ideas about the very nature of reality and how that can impact our concept of community. So I'm gonna try and, and draw a connection between these ideas, the nature of reality and how we think about and create community. And the main talk, main focus of this talk, will be Robinson's coextensiveness, which I again will get to in a moment. But before we do all of that, um, just a little bit about the novel, because I think a little background would help. I don't know if anyone in the audience has read it before, um, but this is a this is a novel that's set in a small rural town in Iowa, like the American Midwest. The town's called Fingerbone, and it's set in a sort of undefined time period, but it feels sort of like mid-20th century-ish. Two young girls, Ruth and Lucille, are abandoned on their grandmother's doorstep by their mother, who then drives her car off a cliff into a large lake nearby. And this lake is gonna figure into the story largely and also into my discussion here. The girls then pass into the care of their eccentric aunt, Sylvie. She's odd. She's actually leads leads like a transient life. It's sort of hard to pin down. It's hard to tell what her past really is. In fact, one of the sub narratives of the novel is that there is this whole community of transients who camp out outside the town, right on the banks of this lake. Sylvie, like the transients, is immediately othered by the people of Fingerbone, um, mostly because her version of housekeeping is sort of strange. Um, she likes to leave windows and doors open to like let leaves gather in the corners of the house she moves all the living room furniture out into the front lawn to clean it and then leaves it there and so the town becomes aware that there's a sort of alterity about her way of living eventually (laughs) eventually as the novel progresses it comes to the point where the town sheriff informs her that the children will be removed from her care so that's the basic plot but what's really important to me in this novel is how robinson places her characters within the natural environment and the landscape, and the way those characters interact with it. Key in this is the lake, as I mentioned. Robinson uses this lake, which is constantly flooding and receding from the town, to illustrate the fluidity of nature, the fluidity of experience, and of consciousness, and then of sort of reality itself. And so the lake becomes a symbol to question these boundaries that get drawn around and between people, things, nature, more than human places and things. And she also refers often to the water cycle, which I think connects a lot to um, the exercise that we just did with Jason. Um, She's always talking about what is happening to the water and how it's affecting the people in this town. From the lake, there's also another lake within the lake, this kind of deeper hidden lake. Um, It rains, it floods, and it's always going around in this cycle. So this brings us to the idea of co-extensiveness. Robinson uses this word in one of the central scenes of the novel. So the two sisters, Ruth and Lucille, they've run away and um, they're spending a night alone out in the woods at the edge of this lake. And during the night, one of the sisters, Ruth, crawls out of a makeshift shelter that they've made to sit by the lake in complete darkness. And Ruth says this quote, The darkness in the sky became coextensive with the darkness in my skull and bowels and bones. I think Robinson's word choice here pinpoints a very specific experience. So it's not just that Ruth feels um, what we might think of as like one with nature. (laughs) Um, It's not that she's just coexistent with the lake, let's say. But coextensiveness is different from coexistence. Um, things coexist by sharing the same space, like we are coexisting in this room, um, or happening at the same time. We coexist with the session next door. Um, things are coextensive though by extending over the same space or time and coinciding in limits or corresponding exactly in intent. Sorry, I think I actually have these. Yeah. Coextensiveness, I'm still actually trying to figure out what it means. <laughs> Whenever I read the definition, I think I get it, and then I'm not sure. So I'm working on it. Um, so in coextensiveness, Ruth discerns the potential of darkness to remove lim- limits, to dissolve observable boundaries that we would see when it's light out. So her, this is a, a very much a sensory experience that she has in the darkness. So I connect st- co-extensiveness with, um, by the way, it's like the hardest word to say. Why did I make a whole presentation <laughs> on it? Co-extensiveness. Um, I connect it with sensibility. It's, it's something in the aesthetic realm. That's how I'm thinking about it. And so this very clear and important divide emerges out of this idea of co-extensiveness in the novel. The younger sister Ruth has this experience, and her eccentric aunt Sylvie. They both share a sort of an innate ability to sense this coextensiveness, or it might also be called a kind of presence in absence or an unbounded boundedness. And again, I think about this as a shared sensibility. It's related to senses, to embodied experience. Um, it's related to ideas of the aesthetic in that way. So Ruth and Sylvie share this sensibility, but the other sister, Lucille, completely rejects it. She actually resents Sylvie and Ruth's alterity and longs for you know, a normal home life. Lucille's idea of normalcy, interestingly, is also sort of related to the aesthetic and how she deals with her appearance and the ways that she wants their home to feel and the ways that she wants to exist, the kind of physical presence that she wants around her. And they're in complete contrast to Ruth and Sylvie. And Ruth and Sylvie's relationship is made made meaningful. They develop a kinship around the fact that they share this sensibility to co-extensiveness. So when the town sheriff threatens to remove the girls from Sylvie's care, Lucille separates herself and moves in with a neighbor. But Ruth and Sylvie, they um, do the obvious thing, which is, burn their house down in the middle of the night and hop a train out of town. (laughs) Obviously. In one of her later essays, Robinson is commenting on this moment in housekeeping when Ruth and Sylvie decide to do this, and she says that by escaping this way, Ruth and Sylvie are making a radical choice about whose terms of reality they will accept. So note that Marilyn Robinson draws a connection between their social condition, their ability to be a family or to be accepted into a community, and how they view reality, their concept of reality. Now, why does this matter? How can we connect Ruth and Sylvie's sensibilities to, like, broader ideas about community and, and democracy? Well, Robinson writes that perhaps one function of fiction is to train us in the fact of the intrinsic plausibility of narrative. This is another one of her famous phrases: intrinsic plausibility. <laughs> um, so, what she's saying here is that story exercises our imaginations, it opens us up to experiences different from our own, and expands our understanding of possible realities. And this is how um, this is how we can learn to view reality as sort of intrinsically hypothetical. Robinson says that. The more generous the scale at which imagination is exerted, the healthier and more humane the community will be. And I think this is such a fundamentally important idea and really forms the heart of so much of Robinson's work and why I'm a little bit obsessed with it. <laughs> so she, she draws a connection between imagination and community. And um, I think by extension that sort of means we can draw a connection between reality and community. It's how we imagine reality that also affects how we imagine community. So the multiple realities we encounter in stories like housekeeping, for example, um, and I would say in many forms of art, probably all forms of art, train us in this same kind of exercise. They help us to expand our capacity to imagine and increases our sensibility to different experiences. Um, Amanda Anderson of Brown University argues that, quote, a major dimension of work in the humanities involves the exploration of questions of value in relation to human experience. So our values as individuals are clarified through the training that we get in learning about how other people live and also in our own lived experiences. In fact, Anderson explicitly identifies humanity studies, literary studies, as being crucial to democratic life. And I think that the thread that ties sort of like humanity studies to democracy is this imaginative coextensive reality that Robinson depicts in housekeeping. So for Robinson, reality is defined more by the unnamed and the unknown, but then by what is observable And a true understanding of reality must recognize what Robinson describes as a penumbra of ignorance and error and speculation, far exceeding what is actually known. So the penumbra is sort of like that place between light and dark, sort of at the margins of a shadow. It's partial shade, partial light. Um, And it's a space of the unknown, which Robinson calls beautiful. Um, She says it's beautiful because it's the action of the human consciousness. So this again brings us back to coextensiveness, to experiences of the consciousness that rely more on sensibilities and in embodied experience than on cognition. This is why young Ruth sits out in the darkness and she feels this connection to the air and the water, to her sister sitting nearby, and also to her mother who has died years ago, but she speaks to as if she's there. Also to the animals and to the rocks and to the lake, She can perceive them there even though she can't see them. And when Lucille hides in their makeshift shelter, afraid of the dark, Ruth goes out into that wild unknown, that deeply imaginative space. This is feeling the possible and imagined networks that work across time and space, across arbitrary boundaries, drawn to delineate knowledges that stem from things like enlightenment era rationality, and that undervalue sense Aesthetic and embodied experience. This is, I think, coextensiveness is about relationality over rationality. This is what um, Candace Chu calls commensurable realities versus reconcilable realities. I think those are that's an interesting distinction to think about. So this is coextensiveness between human or among human, non-human, and more than human. So I want to argue that our ability to build and maintain democratic life depends on this kind of sensibility, and I really do think of it as sort of valuing aesthetic sensibility, sensibility to networks, to relationality, to the connections between not only us as people, but everything, and I think the environment isn't the word, we need to figure out a better word, but to everything that is also non-human, the more than human. Um, And Marilyn Robinson reminds us to think inclusively about who we we include in our community. So do we think of the lake, the trees, the darkness as part of our community? Um, In order to act democratically, we must also think democratically and maybe even imagine democratically. Um, In housekeeping, the primary instructive site for inclusion, and I find this really interesting, it's not like the church or the town or like the authority structures or even the home. Instead, it's the lake. That's where anything that happens sort of outside of what the, the small town or outside of the kind of accepted social behaviors, it occurs at the lake. That's also where this community of transient people gathers. It's where Ruth has her coextensive experience. Um, there's something about the lake as, as a symbol that welcomes a more inclusive community. It embodies both presence and absence in that um, it holds the history of many people who have died from these characters' lives, but it also is a water source, so it feeds life. It has some kind of a homeness of its own. And I read this as instructive. I think that Robinson is telling us that our biggest lesson in creating inclusive communities and I mean not just socially inclusive, but inclusive of non-human things as well. Um, our biggest lesson there should be in thinking and acting democratically and improving the quality of our democracies, but that probably isn't going to come from our democratic institutions alone, or what we think of as democratic institutions, but might instead be in this imaginative space, out there in the darkness by the lake, in the places where living things, human and more than human, are related, networked, and coextensive. Thank you. Great. So, So, I think we'll just have a
3: short conversation and just Expression you've given me at least a coextensiveness to actually yeah. sit because it is kind of an elusive, Watery. slippery concept. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any philosophers in the room, but I hear a little bit of Henri Bergson's duration in that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is the idea that, well, I won't get into it deeply, but anyway, it's this idea that like we often confuse time with spatial metaphors, as mm-hmm. if time is somehow a series of chronological moments mm-hmm. rather than like an unfolding of. Intrinsic possibility was the word, yep. then yeah Intrinsic you
4: know, plausibility, mm-hmm. plausibility. Just even more, wa- more watery I think. Oh, wow, yeah. so yeah. I heard
3: possibility Yeah, okay, that's interesting <laughs> It's even
4: more sort of vague I think. Yeah, and, and I think there's
3: that difference there that you highlighted, which is really important The difference between coextensive and coexisting mm-hmm. That really, for me at least, mm-hmm. made that clear, I don't know about anyone else, but
4: Yeah, there's this other image that comes back in that book a lot, which is that Um, the younger sister Ruth um, so she has lost a lot of people in her life her mother her grandfather her grandmother um, and there are other people who are just kind of absent like there's no father spoken of ever and she often has this kind of vision sort of experience where she sees this kind of place she describes it as kind of like a net around that has caught all these lost things like her mother and lost buttons and it's all kind of the same it's like things you lose like your lost sock and your lost button and your mother who passed away and they're all kind of there, they're present, they're somewhere and somehow, they're not gone by any means, and so that kind of messes with the time thing too, because the past and, and present is not, there's nothing linear like that in this book, it's more that it's all present and absent, Right. and, and sometimes things that are absent are more present than what is present. Mm-hmm.
3: Right, C.N. Bergson writes a lot about memory as well. And for him, memory is not like a recollection of some past event that we pull out of a bag, like an item. It's a constant reenactment, right? It's always a bringing into the present. So in that right. way, it is very co-extensive mm-hmm. in the in that image of the net, I think. It's like it's all present there in some way. Mm-hmm. And memory is just an enactment that is always in the present.
4: Yeah, that is super interesting. I mean, what I find interesting about the Gaia thing is that it's a, it's a named idea. Like a fairly new one, like when we first started, I thought that guy was like this ancient concept. Did everyone else know that it was like invented in the 70s? Well,
3: it's <laughs> sort kind of. I mean, the idea of everything being interconnected is obviously quite an ancient idea. Right. But that yes. this sort of very modern articulation of Gaia through, like, the carbon cycle that we all experienced is sort of a more modern articulation of it. Okay. So it it does kind of have ancient roots, and it yeah. is sort of. Yeah.
4: That's something that we also talked a lot about in our meetings leading up to this, but didn't really mention in our talks is that like these concepts are so present in other forms of knowledge. like in indigenous ways of thinking and spirituality and many others, like the concepts of like interconnectedness, like coextensiveness and like Gaia concepts are like they're foundationally part of those ideas. but I think that in the kind of like humanist era, this post-enlightenment era, those kind of ideas, maybe not so much, right? Like definitely yes. not so much. So I think it's interesting that a lot of people are working on these kind of concepts of like a solution to all the problems we've caused <laughs> with our rational thinking. <laughs> right.
3: And that's where I ask, what does it mean to think beyond the human? Because, you know, Einstein, supposedly it's a bit of an apocryphal thing, but said that we have to um, create, we can't solve the problems with the same level of thinking we used when we created them. Mm-hmm. And so the, those are the types of questions I like to ask, but what does it mean to think beyond? the human, think beyond linear rationality, how do we engage in these more imaginative ways of being, what what does that um, that mean for us?
4: Yeah, and I think that's why I like thinking about um, this as like a sensibility, because I, I, I think like rational problem solving, like we could all think like oh we have serious climate crisis, obviously as human beings we're smart enough to figure out how to solve it, it's not that we lack intelligence I don't think there's obviously issues around political will or whatever but but it's not that we don't know how to do this it's the sensibility to me is like such a key thing like and the ways of thinking the ways of envisioning if you know like what changes in our world if we start thinking about the tree in the same way to think about as the the you know person who we need to get to vote. Do you
0: know what I'm yeah. saying? Just interesting because you were use the
4: word envisioning. Like our language is
0: so full of, of optical, uh, visual sure. metaphor, mm-hmm. all that, about ways of seeing. And what del- part of sure. my total delight in what you guys have done is because we were thinking well, because we were thinking there would be. Um, Talks related to sound because we both—it's yeah. all about sound love—but it, 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 it was, you know, about sen- like it, it was about imagination and mm-hmm. and thinking beyond
4: mm-hmm.
0: these, these, um, yeah, insensibility in, and, and sensitivity. And so I'm wearing these because I have light sensitivity. Oh no, <laughs> but, but the one—sorry, just to uh, just no bubble, no, for, to bubble for, for, that, for a yeah. moment—is one of the things I've done for about the last. Year and a half, two years. Is every morning do a sit spot practice, oh, um, which is like a listening practice, yeah. like doing a like doing a thing. Like there's so many people, like you know, uh, Natalie Lovelace, other people who are doing, um, encouraging new ways of thinking, acting in the Anthropocene. That it's about changing up the sense of it, allow new ways of, of thinking and being. Mm. And you gave me a wonderful way now of understanding what I'm doing because part of it is all about curiosity. I, I don't. It, I know, and it, it is a, an incredible experience. I, I can, and I won't whitter on about it, but it is—it's um, something that uh, I've just been engaged in. in Parks I don't quite understand. Like there's a curiosity, yeah. and there's a generosity <laughs> that is expressed by the environment. All the time. <laughs> like there's this enormous, but it's coextensiveness.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so sorry. Just, what is this
4: assist- Base practice oh, it's just
0: the simplest little thing you can do. You, you just, just sit there and listen? I, in any weather, I go out and sit in my backyard oh, okay. in the morning. Well, okay. it's still dark, so I'm totally oh, intrigued by oh, this right. book right. you're talking about. Right. You know, just as it's getting light, and mm. it, and just opening your sense. It's a listening practice in yeah. part. It's very much listening and, and sense and noticing. It's a noticing practice. Notice, yeah. notice, notice, notice. And it's like a meditation, but it's not inner, it's outer. It's about mm-hmm. be- becoming coextensive. Cool. And it's, it's really wild, mm. it's, and it's the simplest thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's just like a, but the, sorry, I have a question too, but I, I almost, I feel <laughs> free. Can, Can I just, go just say, for so, it. Oh, go Yeah, yeah, question. go for it. Oh, okay. I think that's well, okay. Yeah, the, the thing that I feel brings your talks together is that we're ecos, um, which, you know, the root of ecology, which means home. Mm. And I really feel there hasn't been enough work to get at the, the the eco-critical, political, feminist roots of the sense of what rethinking the home can do, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that description of the you know so what is the ho- what is the home mm-hmm. housekeeping, what you know that that the furniture what this inside-outness that that yeah. woman presents, mm-hmm. this because when the early ecologists brought in this idea of ecology, when they using the home, they were not thinking about domestic politics. Um. So I just finished a book where it's this early woman ecologist debating with this um, early, her friend, a male scientist, during the time of when they're trying to get the vote, suffrage. And it's all about the home. Um, in, in what that means, like, working out the, what is this home? Um, what is... Yeah, and she hates housekeeping. She talks about yeah. the, the real people. But <laughs> just, so my question would be how are you reinventing the
4: home? Mm-hmm. That's a good
3: question. Do you want to take a stand by Jason? So i jumping out at you. I, I think like what's what's coming out for me is that it is, <clears throat> I think it's actually there is a process of continual reinvention. I think this is for me. I guess again, I think when you're talking about home, maybe you can only answer for yourself. Mm -hmm. But anyway, for me, it's like I did grow up in a fairly stable home, and I have this like peace in my experience of life, where like sometimes I have this yearning for the return to that sense of innocence and that stable place, but I don't feel like I can ever go back there. You know and I feel like for me sometimes some of these like environmental crisis I have my head in it 24 mm. 7 it's really actually quite upsetting for me sometimes like existential makes me feel existentially insecure sometimes yeah. so my sense of home is sometimes c- compromised in that sense of the innocence of that I experienced in a stable childhood mm-hmm. but I think that I have worked to reinvent home to be a, where 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 I'm at if I'm accepting where I'm at then that is kind of like whether it's in a sight sitting practice or on the meditation mat, or or here with all of you, um, it's a sense of acceptance and um, belonging that you kind of have to be the change. Mm -hmm. You have to be the first one to accept before you can belong.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: Something like
4: that. Yeah, I think what's so interesting in the novel housekeeping is that there is this contrast between this community of transient people Come in and out. The, the town is, is on a train route, so there's a train that comes in and out, and people jump on and jump off. Um, and the train thing is part of the like kind of timelessness of this novel, and as in, you don't know what time period exactly it is, um, because there's also cars. But anyway, there there is like this. It's called housekeeping, but it's really about people who aren't allowed to have a home, who aren't accepted into a community, and so home becomes actually, or at least the housekeeping related idea of home becomes a privilege of some kind and it becomes like a confined or almost oppressive space Mm -hmm. so when Sylvie enters the town she's this kind of liminal character who is out there as a transient in her life and is now asked is tasked with having to take care of these young girls because there's no one else who will so she's forced into this space where she doesn't belong and also doesn't want to belong. That's not how she lives her life. She like sleeps in her raincoat and boots, and she does all kinds of great, strange things, right? Like never turns the light on. Lights on in the house. Eats in the dark. So all these things that are signaling like complete nonconformity to ideas of home and childcare and housekeeping, and and ultimately it is irreconcilable with the town. Ultimately, they have to burn down the house. Like it's the most extreme thing, right? And so for me. I think that home is framed as like a privileged space like it's something that you can't actually take for granted that you're going to find a home in the world not everyone gets to have a home and possibly home could actually be a structure of like every structure like this is what Marilyn Robson always talks about as soon as you create a structure you're immediately othering so home might actually be another one of those othering spaces Um, so it's complicated right?
3: Maybe you're kind of intimating at the idea that the home, from a feminist perspective, is a very political structure, too, isn't it? There's a whole Mm -hmm. way that a woman fits into that Mm -hmm. that might be different from, yeah.
4: Yeah. It
3: sounds like it's touched on quite a bit in the book. Totally.
4: Because there's also the grandmother character who first cares for the children for a few years. I didn't really mention her, but she's the ideal housekeeper. She has all the things, like gardens and... Makes bread by hand and is perfect at it. She's considered the quintessential, right? So Robinson sets up all these contrasts for us to try and figure out how they're playing against each other. Yeah. Um, but I, I wonder if Gaia, I mean, Gaia's a female character, right? Mm-hmm. So I find that interesting in, in this discussion. Um, you know, does that help us conceive as. Would, could, would thinking of Gaia as a housekeeper
5: <laughs>
2: be
4: useful, right? Does it make us think of of the were earth or whatever as home, and does that make us care about it more or something? Right.
3: So that's where so much of the controversy of Gaia is situated around, is this idea where there's a sense of providence in Gaia. Does Gaia mm-hmm. care about us? Um, right. This whole idea of, like, a benevolent mother figure. Um, so, you know, that's not how... how Lovelock intended it. He actually wrote a book called *The Revenge of Gaia*, where it's quite—Gaia um, is an uncaring, just sort of thing that happens. Um, but, I mean, it doesn't really matter what he thinks.
4: Uh,
3: well, it does matter, I guess, in some ways. But um, but uh, it it again because it is such a mythical poetic figure, it kind of enters the popular consciousness how it does, and that's not like. Yeah, I don't know if I can. An- I don't know, have like a good answer, because I think that we're just seeing the idea of Gaia being played out in all sorts of different narrative ways and different philosophical ways, because it is such a wonderfully ambiguous and creative mythical figure right. in some sense.
4: I think.
1: Okay, yeah. I was okay. I was just gonna say, like, I feel like the combination of Gaia and coextensiveness can create a sense of home. Um, which I think is really interesting, but for me, I feel like I'm also seeing a relationship to the climate change like situation and like talks that are happening. Um, and I'm wondering if um, you guys could talk about maybe whether or not the ideas of coextensiveness and Gaia have a narrative with climate change mm-hmm. and maybe what that relationship looks like.
4: Yeah, one of the seeds of, like, our early conversations on this was about how climate crisis and democratic crisis are happening at the same time. And, you know, does the solution to one also solve the other? Like, the solutions and our problems are related. So it definitely was part of our discourse, especially with the stuff you're working on.
3: Yeah, like, part of the idea of Gaia the Intruder. This is an idea from Isabel Stengers. She's a philosopher. Mm -hmm. She writes Gaia the Intruder, because all these, these... Storms and high flooding events. Or there are all these events that intrude on our affairs. They intrude on our vision of progress. They intrude on our vision of business as usual. And they compel us to think in different ways. They compel us to maybe think in coextensive ways. Because, like I said in the talk, nature is no longer the backdrop, the static backdrop. It's an active player. It, it asserts itself on us whether we're ready for it or not. So I think in some ways climate change is manifestations of the agency of nature you know what i mean like it's really showing that. is that
1: is that in the mainstream narrative of climate change
4: the intruder thing yeah like the concept like
3: idea <coughs> I, well see it gets carry okay, on i'll say something after sure you, sure then. yeah i just I think it does it gets masked over by the problem solving rhetoric that mm-hmm. i was saying before if suddenly climate change is a series of problems that we can solve then it kind of changes the way you think about it and that's often, I think, the mainstream rhetoric around climate change. What
6: yeah. yeah. What the questions that keep coming up for me through your guys' talks? Was can the lake vote? <laughs> yeah, we yeah. try. Yeah, I'm trying to figure and this out. Yeah.
5: Yeah. You
6: know, so rec- most recent um, art piece that I, I was involved in commissioning was um, entitled Ngahaitaka, um, which. Uh, which is the Nisidocan or Okanagan word for "um" means within. Haha is miraculous, wondrous, spiritual. Itoko is the sound of water flowing, so it uh, it means the spirit of the lake, or as some people know it, Ogopogo. But Ogopogo is an appropriation and an inappropriate appropriation. So <clears throat> how then? So uh, the the question that was being tackled there was how do we bring Lachaitoka um, uh, into the public sphere, right? So like how does the voice of with all the depth that she has, in to the experience of being in the Okanagan? Of being a person residing there and creating a dialogue, so that so that is a participant yeah. in our discourse, yeah. right? And yeah. that was sort of what we were we were, we were we were we were talking about as we were as we we're, as we were dealing with this work. And so I, I couldn't help but think about that and like this notion: Does the leak speak? Oh, totally. Right? Because yeah, um, does does Gaia vote? And how um, without appropriating it? And how, without appropriating it, how is that, how is that that voice in a, in the public sphere facilitated, and not uh, instrumentalized, yeah, appropriated, exactly. yeah. these kinds of things, but like uh, uh, mediated or listened to, wow. right? Like as you're saying, you know, the listening practice, you know, like how does that, what does how what does that look like? How do our how do our cultural institutions and artists and so on participate in that, or how do we orient them to to function, you know, in a way that that, that, that permits this type of thing? Anyway, those are the kinds of things that I'm wondering about.
4: Yeah, I, that's that's actually really gets to the heart of a lot of things that we're trying to think about too. And I think the the one the missing piece with the kind of talk about um, the kind of political structure of democracy is that you know, the question like does the lake vote is really interesting question because um, it's puzzling to consider how that could be. But you also have to then look, ask questions about what we're thinking of as democracy. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what Joanna speaks about is how, um, you know, we call things democracy, but are they really? Like the? Pro- it gets to the structural problems of our democratic processes and we talked a lot about the idea of you know more participatory and inclusive democracy. Mm-hmm. And so is democracy being able to vote? Is that what it is? I think that right now that might be one of the structures that we think of as democracy, but I think scholars like um, Candace Chu and Amanda Anderson are talking about um, democratic life or democratic thinking in a far in an unstructural way, more of a like, mm-hmm who we are and how we are in the world, our ways of thinking and being and knowing, and not necessarily what systems we have to use mm-hmm. to, you know, elect people. So sometimes the lake voting may, mm-hmm. you know, voting isn't necessarily what the lake has to do to be included, mm-hmm. sort of. <laughs> yeah. Um, Did you have a comment?
5: Sorry, if yeah. you wanted to. Go ahead. Uh, I'd, I'd, exactly, uh, those were my thoughts exactly. Uh, to. Um, Politically, often we'll describe, you know, having our voices heard or dialogue and listening. And uh, language is very wrapped up in that structure. And in language, being able to reason, right? And, like, how can we reason with the lake? Um, I'm not sure that's possible. And upholding that structure that makes it impossible, well, that is the obstacle that we need to overcome. But I really liked your, um, like, your focus on sensibility. And I think it really, um, it ties well into Jason's, um, the thought experiment from Mm. Animate Earth. Mm. Um, But so, like, I'm just thinking, how can we zoom out from sense as like, like the sensory experience, right? Of the like conscious, if you want to say that. Like, How can we move towards an experiential? Can the world Mm. experience, period, can carbon atoms experience, right. right, not in any, you know, electrochemical way, but a world that is experiencing and that we're part of that? And that would then in turn maybe have – anyway, that's no, my that's question. that's so
4: important. I do know that, like, if I am able to get in a lake, like put my body in a lake, I will view that lake differently than if I've never had the experience of being in the lake, yeah. right? So we could maybe extrapolate that to, like, how human ex- – how humans make different democratic decisions based on their experience right. of nature. Or whatever. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> you
0: had a thought. Yeah. No.
2: I just, I just wondered about um, <coughs> how people talk about Gaia's relationship to other heavenly bodies, mm-hmm. or um, and and what the you know uh, what 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 does who does Gaia depend upon mm-hmm. and um, and and you know like obviously the sun and the moon or. In, you know players right and, and I just wondered how it's how it's conceptualized or defined mm-hmm. in uh, Lovelock or other writings yeah, <coughs> or how you think about it yeah it's a cool or question. whether we should think about it because I think we're we often limit ourselves to thinking about our little ecosystem in our atmos- within our atmosphere bubble and mm-hmm. out there okay. is like vast and unknowable and apparently infinite. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. So yeah. No, it's a really cool question because you're we, absolutely right.
2: It's like well, we used to think about the Earth as an infinite resource, mm-hmm. you right. know, because right. we're so we're so we occupy such a small space and we have such a limited range of you know our senses only extend so far and our lifespan is so short. Uh, I don't know. I think that. Maybe it's enough to only like think about what happens within the Earth's atmosphere, but I just wondered about you know the the, the, the
3: bigger relationships.
4: Yeah. So is the concept of Gaia a universal <coughs> kind of thing, or is it Earth centered? Well,
3: it's very it's very Earth bound in terms of Lovelock's articulation of it, but I think it's a cool question because it is it does that idea can extend beyond the atmosphere, right? Yep. Because really, the atmosphere doesn't even really have a concrete. Well, the Earth doesn't exist anywhere.
2: without receiving energy from, receiving from the, sun. the sun. Like mm-hmm. the Oort cloud, or even
3: around the entire solar system protects us from like larger asteroids. Right. you could yes. think of like all mm-hmm. kinds of the magnetosphere of the sun protects us. From, you know, so there's yeah. so many ways to think about it. Yeah. That go past our atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, that's a really wonderful way to make it even a bigger story. Some of those.
0: Um, I was just so. Happy to see Latour, I used to be enormous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went through the the tour rock stage. All, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, the, 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 one of my favorite quotes is when he's talking about the Anthropos and how we are a weaver of morphisms, and if when we don't we we lose our humanity. Mm-hmm. That the human because we're so woven, as soon as we separate and just say humans have a vote. Mm. So I was mm-hmm. back. In in time when he introduced the Parliament of Things idea, and I'm curious what the status of that is anymore amongst you youngins.
2: Yeah, <laughs> is that You've still talking
0: about it and maybe and I guess <laughs> in terms of representation, because that's what I was so taken by at the time. That there's he was sort of thinking, you know, we only think about representation on the literary aesthetic level, but let's put those two together: the political and the literary, mm. and representation. Who speaks? Who gets to speak? And
3: how does how is speaking even enabled an agency and all that? Mm-hmm. Is it, is it? No. Oh, it's still part of the, the, the like. I'm not sure if you've been following lately, but his biggest book recently is Facing Gaia: Eight Lectures on the climat- New Climatic Regime. Okay,
0: which I have
4: one. Yeah, it's um,
3: so he's like he's got his head in this stuff because it's just, I think it is kind of an extension of all that idea of parliament of things and actor network theory and all these because everything is an actor in in Gaia. That's kind of how Gaia is articulated. No. No piece, big or small, is is outside of the network of connections that all eventually participate in these democratic processes. And you know, we can ask, like, what does it mean for a Lake to vote? It doesn't mean that they're going a lake is going to cast a ballot. But you know, what if a, um, Trudeau or someone gives some environmental address in front of a lake? Is that lake participating in our our democratic yeah. processes? You know? Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Or you know. Um, as you're as are speaking, I, I, I what, where I um, exercised self-control a little earlier <laughs> uh, was um, uh, just recalling all of the um, I don't want to say ritual, but practices engaged with the lake, right? Yeah. Whether they be um, annual um, rituals, periodic, you know, engagements. But specific cultural engagements with the lake, but it's not the lake. It's not just the lake. It's with Mm Nahahaitoka, right? And that, and conceptualizing it not as I'm going to the lake, but I'm going Mm Nahahaitoka, and that engagement, and that changes the way that we experience that space, and then speak with for through.
4: Mm, I really like that idea. It's, it's like, it's not just that you're changing the name of something, <laughs> but you're, you're changing what the experience is. Because yeah. then it's a relationship, it's yeah. relational. Because yeah. so, like, you've,
6: yeah. you've been in the lake, mm-hmm. but did you meet her? Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. Mm.
6: Right? True. Did you meet her? And what did she mean to you? I mean, did you <laughs> sustain the dialogue?
4: Right. It reminds me of like, I was thinking as we've been talking about co and things, you know, a busy street these days, you see all these people walking and rubbing shoulders and passing by each other and all of us are wearing headphones, right? In our own world, wearing clothes all the time. And so like, you know, you can be in the lake and not interact with it, right? Or you can you can be walking down the street and hearing each other and bumping into each other and having a conversation. Like mm-hmm. I think there's something kind of some kind of analogy there that I think mm-hmm. is
0: useful maybe. In geography there's this this thing, we like to turn nouns into verbs, mm. like, the, you know, landscape's a verb, mm. or, uh, right. you know, just to say, okay, you know, it's not just a watershed, you're watershed mm. what does that mean? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> How can you work with that? Always so it's, but i just thinking, because I, I think language must be key to this, mm. and then... I think probably the key for us too is to still learn some new languages probably like a word like you're saying just yeah such like, an amazing beautiful like it gives you shivers when you in, say inside, it inside <laughs>
6: miraculous right inside miraculous wondrous the sound of water flowing those are the three words that compose yeah, right. oh. that spirit or you know maybe spirit's the wrong word
3: and I, I'm just it, yeah so how did you guys, what did you guys do? Like, what was your project? How did you feel you were able to conduct your project without um, appropriating the voice of the lake, or maybe you felt that you did in some way, or how, like, what did you guys do? Um, well, it was quite,
6: quite simple. It was just, um, uh, so actually there was an exhibition at the Center Creeps Heritage Museum, uh called um, misappropriation of culture and a particular display in that exhibition was about Ogopogo and how that was a misappropriation of um, uh, of Okanagan orsey Hills culture and um, so we so at the art institution that I was running um, I invited uh, the curator of that exhibition to remount in a new way that exhibition. So, from so working with with partners in West Bank First Nation, they came and did a, a specific remount of that thing. But then it was like, we need a new expression on top of that. And one of the the artists, the the, the curator also is a, is, a, is a is a painter, and um, she volunteered to do a mural so did a a massive mural painting. Now, she's richly engaged with her culture, um, has been contending with this concept for much of her life in one way or another, and quite um, vigorously since the conceptualization of that misappropriation of culture Um, exhibition, um, you know, and as a Seahawks woman, the, is engaged with certain practices, right? So it has a different type of relationship, you know. Um, yes, entering the lake, but entering the lake in ways that are different from how you and I might enter the lake. Um, and uh, yeah, and and um, so Coralie did did a sketch, and proposed, and I said, amazing. Can okay, she did it. So it, it's just. Coming from the community, from the people who are engaged, you know, and have held that culture, and now mm-hmm. are responsible for carrying that culture, you know, for millennia, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so she did it, mm-hmm. and it was great, <laughs> and I lost my job <laughs> <laughs> because the community of Kelowna did not like that. Yeah, I had a very had a very hard conversation with my board of directors oh, about yeah. it. So, it it can be very disruptive. Yeah. To yeah, do this kind I, of thing, that's it. Yeah. Um, because it change it, it, it challenges ideas in a big way. Um, yes. And sometimes those ideas don't like being challenged very much. Um, but yeah, it was. Um, uh, it was very yeah uh, yeah. Anyway, it was something that I. I it, that's how big it is. so not really it's just like saying yes saying yes
4: yeah but I think that is a good point because a lot of these ideas they are anti-structural right yeah. we're talking about right. breaking boundaries and yeah. all, all of the concepts we talked about are like watery is the word I keep using yeah. but you know so like that you know obviously as soon as you're disrupting a boundary somebody in power somebody involved with money and power is being disrupted always because <laughs> those boundaries have been constructed right for reasons mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, And I do think that language is important. I was thinking about something that I actually learned um, like in undergrad, um, Edouard Glissant who works in like, um, like Creolization and ideas around race. I always, one of the most kind of like profound things that I learned from him was, but there's in our, in like the English language, we might use the word mix. and, um, And in Creole languages, there's this other word um, it's like metissage, which the meaning is actually to weave. And so like that weaving, the idea of weaving is so different than mixing, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you put that on the concept of, of racial, racial relations, how different that is. And so, so much of, let's say, um, certain kinds of thinking around, let's say, like the history of the American itself. Mm-hmm. the language around it is that there are these separate races right but with the idea of metissage like that that can't be true it's all always interdependent cuz in weaving that they each each piece needs the other piece right so like that's one example of how language and like the same thing with this this word or name for the lake like it's profound what just a single word how it can shift the way you think about something and i think that's why things like interdisciplinarity breaking down boundaries between cultural forms of knowledge, ways of knowing, like especially in an academic um, context, you know, breaking down all the things that have built up the university so that we can include these other forms of knowledge, which in one word can sometimes destroy a lot of damage mm-hmm. or destroy, destroy the a lot dis- of damage. <laughs> 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 just t-shirt. kind of <laughs> blow apart <laughs> the structure, right, that is damaging and I think that's why these kinds of exercises are so like useful, you know? <sighs> Sorry, I'm getting overly dramatic. Um, so I have another question that's
1: in a maybe slightly different direction, but still related. So um, I think like now with the like, with like kind of like all of the digitit- digitization and like the internet and like all of that, um, and like technology in general and like your your graph about how like progression against like the backdrop so like I feel like it really changes our perception of reality and our re- our perception of reality now is very different from I guess what people's perception of reality was pre-internet um, and so I guess like two questions and um, just like one how does you know this disrupt the concept of Gaia or how does it fit in the concept of Gaia and then two um how do, we, how do we co-exist or what is the relationship between, like, co, I can't say the extensiveness, word, extensiveness, the co-extensiveness <laughs> uh, in this idea of reality that we are now in, right. like, how, how does that, mm. what is the
3: interaction? Does
1: Guy have an
4: Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> what would Guy's Instagram look like?
3: Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it definitely adds another layer of complexity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, another philosopher baudrillard he talks a lot about how we live in a culture of image and how a lot of it like not only like are we think of ourselves in imagistic terms we look at images all the time like a lot of our experience of nature is mediated through the internet or mediated through nature documentaries and um, we were kind of talking about that this morning a little mm-hmm. bit about how what does it what does it do to your conception of nature when you watch um, Chippendale? or all Duck Then you see a real duck and you're kind of your concept of duck is all messed up right and I don't I think the key there is not to really try to get at what the true duck is but to kind of what accept that we live in this ambiguous creative imaginative world and that's part of it I think like it's easy to either point a negative or positive finger at the internet and say oh it's connecting us or oh it's uh, fracturing us but I think it's just another part of the way the world now works, it's here for sure, and it's a very significant part of the way the world works. And it just give it just births new ways of seeing new imaginative structures. Um, and again, we can point fingers at what's good or bad about it, but that's another discussion together, I think.
4: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the interesting part about it is that it's based on the idea of networking, which is so key to all this, but so were books. You know, book as a technology was disruptive probably equally or maybe more <laughs> than this. And th- they had all the same ideas about like virality that we think of when we're talking about the internet, viral spreading of ideas, viral spreading of viruses. Those concepts were around books too, which is why in the be- you know, beginning of the printing press time it was so controlled. So it's interesting to wow. think like, you have to think about, you know, in our time, obviously it's so powerful for good and for bad, um, obviously. But it is a networking tool. So, in some ways, it connects us in a way that, you know, there's no going back from, right? So, it's a tool, it's a technology. It changed, obviously, it changed who we are. But it's
3: a tool and a technology which implies that we're in control of it. But right. Also, it has an agency of its own, right? right? Yeah. Very true. Like, I was just reading the other day that mm-hmm. I think it was 40 or 50% of anti climate change tweets are from mm-hmm. bots. Right. Well, University okay. at Columbia did a study, found mm-hmm. that most climate change denialist tweets are from bots. ExxonMobil bots. Um, ExxonMobil bots. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> like the big brother bots, basically. ExxonMobil <laughs> and like the powers that be, and apparently some links to the Trump administration, whatever, whatever. But um, the fact is the, agent, the, the internet has this sort of agency, in the same way that Gaia has an agency that's beyond, that's more than human now, almost okay. in a way. Like, so much of it's beyond our control that we have to think of it in those terms just think
6: of it as a tool. Um, well I just wanna kind of uh, raise Marshall McLuhan and like oh, yeah. how yeah. much how big of a thinker and how important he was, you know, when Lovelock was uh, writing about Gaia. And the do you know Marshall McLuhan? No. Okay, so Marshall McLuhan he, he did this like um, analysis where he's like Okay, so back in the day when we were like reading text, uh, we organized things in lines. So we made our armies in lines and we lined them up and we sent them out against each other. But then when radio communication comes, we enter into an oral space and we become again the global village, right? And so no longer are we organizing in lines, but instead we're organizing in like different sorts of ways, right? So he's kind of talking about how um, the way that the, Media that we consume, or the the, the 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 technology through which media is transmitted, um, alters the way that we think, right? And so, text being a very kind of linear and progressive uh, type of thing, and then um, uh, you know uh, television and radio being another type, right? And, and the television being very interesting because radio fills the room with sound which where did it limit we don't know but we know that the television was right there and it focuses us on the television right and so like and and so then what is it that the internet does and i think it's quite interesting because the internet you know it focuses us into here and it has us organizing in lines most of the time Um, but then also in a volley of exchange right so we need i think we really need to think about how that technology is 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 impacting um, the way that we organize and and the way that you know and, you know and the way that 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 that, um, uh, that voices had and what can be listened to, what makes itself heard, right? Like through um, how it can be, uh, you know, it's it's not like uh, uh-huh, it's a ha'i concept was uncorruptible right, just like the Catholic Church was not uncorruptible, right, the priest could manipulate and destroy your life if they wanted to, right, in, in, in each different era, there's like, a, there's ways that people in power can really manipulate, and now it's Putin, Exxon, and Trump, you know, mm-hmm. who are maybe funding these tweets, that, so what, what is it that this medium's doing to the way that we, we express and experience, I think is a very important question, you yeah. mm-hmm.
0: I remember seeing, because there was first the like, the medium is the message, yeah. mm-hmm. but then he had another book that I, I thought was even, is the massage, but it sort of gets to the embodied effects, yeah. you know, in a way, like it really
4: does impact mm-hmm. in this, yeah. it changes us, yeah. I think, I think mm-hmm. it still yeah. Yeah. but it's interesting that Marilyn Robinson draws the connection to like story she doesn't say like books per se exercise your imagination she just says stories so and narrative mm-hmm. and obviously we're getting narrative these days in like every format possible mm-hmm. and so maybe that might be like the thing that we should always be listening for is like what story am i being told whether i'm getting it on a podcast or a, you know on you know whatever on netflix or wherever so it's like the story is the really influential thing like we can't even help it in fact i loved in the carbon exercise it was like they were like passionately attached they like couldn't pass by that atom and I was like oh story of my life <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, this. again but I feel like we're like that with stories like human yeah. beings like our brains are just like narrative I want yeah. it and that's like amazing and so dangerous at the same yeah, time the same, right yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: so we're just at the three o'clock mark now do you guys
4: have any concluding thoughts that you'd like to add or um, I don't. I just want to say thank you so much for being part of this great conversation. It was amazing, really. And thank you guys, too, for prompting us. It was so great. Yeah, that's
3: all. Yeah. I just want to express gratitude. And
4: yeah, thank, thank you, Nikita, for keeping us in line. Yeah. <laughs> I think this was a fantastic conversation.
1: I think we have lots to continue to reflect on. Um, but yes, yeah, so now there's a coffee break for half an hour, so please enjoy the rest of the conference. So. Cool. Thank
0: you. <laughs> That's it for this panel discussion. We hope that you'll listen to another, or better yet, join us at the next Beyond Boundaries conference.